good to be back home. A group of us were gone uh, through the week. Chris and Jen and Jeff and Carol and uh, who else? Yeah, Brian and Kathy. Are they here tonight? Brian and Kathy? Nope, there's Brian. We had a wonderful time. Timothy's gift. It was our 20th tour. And these folks just did a, a job. Uh, Chris and those that were out could attest. We could just sit here and talk about it all week long. Um, I, one thing, I wrote about it on Facebook yesterday. I was, I guess it was Thursday, we were at a particular unit, and a young man walked up to me after service, slight built, small kid, couldn't have been barely over 100 pounds, looked about 30 years old, but very rough, and had a upside-down crucifix here with a six and a six and a six and you know just a kid tattooing for attention demons on his arm but he, he came up to me and and it was after the service he told me that he had not been to a chapel since he had been incarcerated for 11 years I asked him why and he very quickly said I've just I, I've never felt like I was good enough I didn't belong here and we talked a little bit and he said anyway I just wanted to come tell you that um, I'm from your hometown, and I, I grew up there my whole life. And he said, you might know the case that put me here. I mean, within the first three minutes, he called the young man's name that he, had, he and a friend of his had taken this young man's life, and the young man whose life he had taken was a friend of mine. Talk about a sobering moment, Chrissy, that just staggered me for a little bit. It's one of those moments that... Um, you try to keep the feathers smooth on the surface, but the feet are paddling hard underneath for sure. Uh, the young man that uh, he had taken his life, I grew up with. We went to school from fourth grade to twelfth grade. He was a couple of years behind me, but we were in school that whole time and knew his family very well. Remember the case. And when he told me that, um, he saw the strange look on my face, and I looked at him and I said, well, Norm was a friend of mine. And the kid immediately backed up from me. And I gathered myself and reached back to him and, I mean, what do you do? You don't say, well, it's okay. You know, it's not, I'm not God and I'm not this young man's family. I was just a, an, a, you know, a friend. But we continued to talk a little while and I gave him whatever grace I could muster to give. And then he told me that somewhere in the course of the service he had felt a, a tear. And he said, I had forgotten what it felt like to have a tear on my face. He said, I think the last time I remember having a tear on my face was 14 years ago. And those are the kinds of moments. Um, he told me, he said, my mom and dad have no contact with me. And he said, I don't blame them. He said, I've burned every bridge possible. Um, I'll be here for another 10 years. He said, but if you ever run into my mom and dad, would you tell them that, he said, would you tell them that I love them and tell them that, and this is so simple, but he said, would you tell them that when I get out, I'm going to get this taken off of my face? You know, just, it's amazing the, what he, how he was thinking. He said, I'm going to get this taken off my face. I said, well, how will you do that? He said, through laser. And he said, would you also tell them that I feel like my heart's getting lasered? A heart that was so tattooed by, you know, just brokenness. But we had those stories all week long. It was just a remarkable time. We were in eight different services, I suppose six institutions, and I'm going to share a little bit of what I shared with you tonight, and then Jeff will 
conclude my sermon with the song that he sang when he was out there. And I'm telling you, those that went with us, Jeff and Jen, were just unbelievable. Their worship leading, it was just phenomenal. But think about this sermon, both in the context of your life and in the context of incarcerated men and women. Luke, the 15th chapter, says that Jesus one day was sitting reclining with publicans and sinners. The Bible literally says in the 15th chapter, that verse, first verse, that all of the sinners, it's interesting language, all of the sinners, in other words, the notorious bad people in town, were gathering themselves to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 11, and I, I mentioned this there, Matthew 11 I think verse 29 says that Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And I think um, sometimes words, small words can be made too much of. Sometimes they can be made too little of. But I think it's very important, the preposition here. Jesus was not simply called a friend to sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. Now, there's a difference there. A friend to sinners means that Jesus was expressively a friend to people who were sinners. And that makes sense for those of us that believe in the incarnation that God came in the flesh of Jesus. I suppose that if God came in flesh and walked among people, that he would be a friend to broken people. That's not hard to believe. But the Bible doesn't say he was a friend to sinners. That's understood. The scripture is very clear. He was a friend of sinners. And the distinction there is the fact that he was a friend of sinners means that when sinners were talking, Jocelyn, about their friends, they listed Jesus. He was a friend of publicans. So the remarkable thing about Jesus, and I think something we can learn from, is it's not strange that he was comfortable in the presence of sinners. What perhaps is more strange is that they were comfortable in his presence. And boy, religion has a lot to learn from that because religion has done a lot through the years to make people like the young man that came up to me feel as uncomfortable as they possibly can in the presence of holiness. But the interesting thing about Jesus was that sinners felt comfortable with him. Somehow he accommodated them in such a way that the young prostitute, the girl who had no family, nothing to fall back on, and had to sell her body to provide for her children, that young woman felt comfortable in the presence of Jesus. She was not shamed. She was not diminished. She was not dehumanized. So Jesus was sitting with these tax collectors, these publicans, and the tax collectors, they were... Um, they were a particularly hated group because these were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government. And not only were they uh, excising a tax from their Jewish brothers and sisters for the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire gave them latitude and dispensation to even squeeze their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters, even more and take an extra cut off of them. And everybody knew they were doing it. So they weren't just paying the normal Roman tax, they were paying an excise tax into the selfish greed of this one who was a compatriot, a, you know, a, a fellow countryman. So Jesus was sitting with them. So that's the setting. Jesus is sitting with them, reclining and eating with them. And the Bible says 
that a group of Pharisees approached that situation. And when they came upon that situation, the Bible said they started grumbling amongst themselves. Right there beside the the scenario, they started grumbling amongst themselves, probably loud enough that the group of people in question, the questionable group of people, heard them. It was a dehumanizing moment because that's what bad religion does. It dehumanizes people. It diminishes them. It makes them feel as bad as they possibly can. Never forget one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, talking about a social worker that worked there at Tulip Street Church in Chicago where Philip and his wife went. And the the social worker was talking about a young girl, a young prostitute um, that really had lived a very rough life. And this social worker wasn't working directly with her, but his wife, who was also a social worker, was working. And she came home from work one day very troubled. And she told her husband that after talking to the girl, trying to get the girl all the aid that she could get her and get her the help to get out of that life, She personally, as an aside, kind of broke the rules of social work. And Chrissy, she asked the girl, would you want to come to church with us sometime? The girl's visceral reaction was, church? Why would I go to church? I already feel bad enough about myself. Um, And that's not entirely unfounded. The Pharisees grumbled about these people. Perhaps they even looked at Jesus and said, you know, it's really inappropriate, this thing you're doing. It's an an awful moment. I mean, it's a really terrible moment. There's nothing more dehumanizing than, than to have a group of two people talking about you as though you're not there, as though just talking about you in the third person, like you don't exist and you don't deserve a direct address. So that's the ugly scenario. These people complaining directly to Jesus in the hearing of the broken people about the fact that Jesus was a holy man and as an emissary, a representative of God, he really shouldn't be commiserating with this kind of people. The Bible says that Jesus looked at them and in his inimitable way, instead of directly punching them back, instead of contradicting them, correcting them, and giving them the simple answer, The Bible said that Jesus did what he was often wont to do. He he had good pedagogy, Jocelyn. He was a great teacher. Instead of coming directly at them, he looked at them and said, can I tell you a story? Now, the beauty of this is, now remember who I'm telling this to, but the beauty is I'm now telling this story to a church full of people. And I'm telling you that I told the story to incarcerated people, so I'm kind of setting you up a little bit if you know what I'm doing here. Because Jesus now is telling this story to the Pharisees, but he's telling this story to the Pharisees as a defense, as an apologetic of why he's with these people. So the people that he's defending his right to be with and their right to be with him, they're overhearing this as well. And this is what he said. Actually a three-chapter story. It's actually three sub-stories. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, there was a shepherd, and he had a hundred sheep. One day he was out tending those sheep, and evidently a storm came up, and the storm began to rage and sleet and snow and cold, and it became dangerous for the sheep and at least uncomfortable. 
And so the shepherd decided to hustle them back to the fold and get them in the barn safely. And so somehow in the hustle and bustle, the shepherd got the sheep all back in the barn. And when he got them back in the barn, he counted them. I made a joke, but it's really not a joke at that point because these men, Jeff, go through how many counts a day? Four to six counts a day. Four to six times in their day, their day is interrupted. They have to go to a certain place, and they have to be counted. I mean, they're a number. They're a six-figure number already, but now they're being counted just to make sure that they're all there. And I even said something to them. I said, I know you guys don't know anything about counting and they, being counted, and they laughed uncomfortably. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, the shepherd counted, and he counted 99, and he counted again. I don't know how many services this week we had to wait because the count wasn't right. I mean, there were times, Chris, we were waiting. Carol, we waited an hour or two sometime because they couldn't get the count right. And these grown men and women have to just keep standing there waiting for the COs to just do basic math and get the number right. The shepherd, Jesus said, when he found there was 99 as is the case with grace, decided 99% was not enough. I don't know how we've built a religion anywhere near the idea that it would be somehow satisfying to God to have heaven populated by only a small fraction of humanity. I don't know how we've gotten away with that for 2,000 years. When stories like this exist in Scripture, where Jesus, revealing the heart of God, said 99% wasn't even good enough for God. Wow. There's a lot of other scriptures that we could have built our theology on other than the scary ones, aren't there? After counting a few times, the shepherd decided there was nothing left to do. He could not cut his losses because grace never cuts its losses. One is too great of a loss. And so the shepherd went out. And as the shepherd went out, he searched all night long and I remembered as I was telling that the song that my grandmother and granddad, Lavelle and Dorothy George, sang all over southeast Missouri and northeast Arkansas my whole life growing up. The little Pentecostal world we, we were in, they were popular singers, and I think they had three songs they sang for 40 years. Anybody remember that world? I mean, it's the same song over and over, but this one was a good one. The shepherd went out to search for his sheep, and all through the night o'er the rocky steep, he searched till he found him, and with love bands he bound him, and I was that one lost sheep. The Bible says that when he found the little ewe lamb, the little wavered one, it was cold, it was raining, he put it on his shoulders, didn't even require it to walk home. He carried it all the way home, and when he got home, he put it with the other sheep, and after putting it with the other sheep, he was so, he was so happy that he had all 100 of his sheep back in the fold, that there in the middle of the night, he did something kind of remarkable. He literally called his friends and families, woke them up. Jeanette, he said, you got to come and you got to celebrate with me. This is too good to celebrate alone. You got to get here and you got to celebrate. And so they came and they celebrated and Jesus stopped and he looked at the Pharisees and he said, that's the way it is in heaven when one sinner repents. And I, I don't know exactly what the Pharisees were thinking and I don't know exactly what the... Um, the sinners were thinking, but I don't, think, I don't think it's a stretch to think that at that moment, both groups are thinking, okay, it's very clear, 
the Pharisees who stayed in the synagogue their whole life and lived plain's life. They're the 90 and 9 that don't cause any trouble. And we're the ewe lamb. They're the ewe lamb. The vagabonds, the ragamuffins, you know, this motley crew of sinners who cause trouble. And Jesus is defending the fact that we ought to celebrate that these people are repenting. And the Pharisees think, well, if they're really repenting, if they're really going to leave their sin. And Jesus stops and says, and there's a woman. He's going to make this simpler now because he's now moving from 100. He says there was a woman who had 10 coins. And you got to know in that day and age, this isn't 10 $1 pieces. This is 10 units of money that probably was everything she had in the world that she was going to live out her life on. There was no social welfare system, no constructs for retirement. This was the money that she had to make her life literally work out to the end with. And one day horror struck, Jesus said, as she was checking, as she often did, checking to make sure her coins were intact, she found that one was missing. And now it's not a 1% problem, now it's a 10% problem. And this woman, just horrified, she went looking everywhere. She went looking everywhere, she turned the house upside down, turned the furniture upside down, swept it from corner to corner, and then finally, when she was just about to give up hope, Jesus said she found this coin. And when she did, she was so thrilled. She called her friends and family. You guessed it, brought them. They partied. They celebrated. Jesus smiled, looked at the Pharisees and said, that's the way heaven is. When one sinner comes home, when one sinner repents, heaven rejoices, throws a party, stops protocol, and just throws down a party of grace. Jesus looked at them, and he's not finished. Uh, of course, now they've got, okay, this, those people are the lost sheep. They're the lost coin. We get it. They come home. We celebrate if they repent. Jesus said there was a man, and he had two sons, 110, two. He's narrowing it down now. The bullseye is really getting close to their chest. Jesus said this fellow had two sons, and the youngest of those sons, of course, the foolish one, the silly one. Again, the, the spotlight is on these sinners here, and, and, and it's pretty clear that this younger son is going to represent them. This younger son came to the father one day and said, I don't want to be your son anymore. And you would have to know something about Semitic culture to know an early demand of inheritance before a father died is a rescinding of your relationship with the father. You are literally saying in that moment, I don't, not only do I not want to be here, I don't want you to ever think of me again because I'm not going to think of you. You're not my dad. I'm not your son. I never have felt at home here. I'm not at home here. I don't want to make this my home. So I want you to give me what belongs to me. And in this rash, wasteful, act of entitlement, arrogant entitlement, the kid says, give me what you owe me. The father divides the inheritance, gives it to the young man, Jesus said, and Jesus told the Pharisees, this kid went out and you could guess what he did. He lived about like those people. He spent his money on debauchery. He spent his money until it was completely gone, wasted it. That's what prodigal means. It means wasteful. And Jesus said when he got to the end of his money, he realized that he had burned all of his bridges back home. 
And, and again, I'm telling this to incarcerated people. And by this time, I'm saying, does anybody here know about a prodigal journey? Anybody here know about wasting life? Anybody here know about getting so far away from home and then wanting to go home but realizing you've burned all of the bridges? The young man that came to me, he said at his last parole hearing, he thought he had a chance, but his own parents showed up and said, do not let our son out. He's bad to the core. He looked at me and said, I don't blame them, but sometimes I do lay in my bunk and wonder, am I really bad to the core? Was I born bad, or did the badness start after all of those years when I was two and three and four and five years old when my stepfather beat me mercilessly? When I was sexually abused by an uncle, when did my badness start? Anybody here, I ask the fellows, know what it's like to take a prodigal journey? Anybody sitting here, I would say to them, know what it is to not be able to understand the benefits of home and have to take a prodigal journey to find out? Of course, they did. And of course, Jesus could have done the same thing in the setup with the people as he talked about the prodigal son. He, Jeff, he could have looked over at the, you know, the, the harlot and the, the wasted life and he could have said, you know what I'm talking about here? And the Pharisees would have looked down their nose condescendingly and said, of course they do. And Jesus said when he got to the end of his money, he knew he couldn't go home, so he went and he found himself somebody to work for. And it was a bad situation because this guy was a farmer, and when the young man signed up to work for him, he was in such a desperate place that the farmer told him, I tell you what, I'm going to put you at the lowest rung on this ladder. You can slop the pigs. You can be responsible to feed the pigs. And then the guy gets him by the collar and says, but you listen to me. When you're feeding those pigs... Don't you waste one ounce of the slop on your own belly. Anybody know what it is to fall so far that you're standing there one day, as the young man did, looking at the pigs eating the slop filled with the husk of corn. Not even corn, but the husk, the waste material. And he's watching them eat and he wants to put his face down in there amongst the pigs. And about the time his ravenous hunger drives him down into the slop, he realizes, I can't do that. I'll get fired because I'm not even worth pig food to my boss. And knee-deep in that scenario, knee-deep in that hog pen, the old King James Version said he came to himself. And Jesus could have looked over at that group of people and said anybody know what it is to be so far down that you come to yourself and I looked out at that group of guys and said anybody here know what it is to be knee deep at rock bottom thinking to yourself how did I end up here how did somebody with those parents that job that education how did somebody how did I waste my life to this point? The Bible said he came to himself and he said, I want to go home. And then he thought to himself, but I don't have a home. I've recanted my home. And then he thinks to himself, but my dad's a good man. Maybe he will have a fit of mercy. And he has this aha moment, Sandy. He says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell him, I know I'm not your son. And I'm not worthy to be your son. And you don't have to call me son, and I won't call you dad. I won't sully your ears by calling you dad. And I'm not asking to be back in that home, to live in that bedroom. My inheritance is gone. My relationship is gone. 
but would you have some pang of mercy on me and let me just be a slave? And so at that point, sin had taken him away from home, but now he's facing this other spiritual enemy that's fighting him all the way back home, and it's shame. So I'm telling the fellas, you've got sin taking you away, but now all of a sudden you're sitting here, and shame's telling you you can't go home. Shame told a young man, you're not even good enough to go to a prison chapel service. Shame fights you the whole way home. And all the way home, he's rehearsing. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to be called son. I won't call you dad. Please just make me a slave. And as he rounds the corner, Jesus said, he looks and he sees the home in the distance. And his heart starts pounding. And he thinks to himself, here it comes. And as he's bracing himself and preparing his speech of unworthiness and shame... A message that the Pharisees, as Jesus is telling the story, would have nodded their head and said, that's exactly what he ought to say. He looks up and he thinks to himself, I'm going to walk up on that porch, and as you've heard me say many times, I'm going to walk up on that porch, and I know the old man is going to look through the curtains, and when he sees me, if I'm lucky, I'll bang on the door, and he'll open the door, and the chain will still be on, and he'll look across that chain through gritted teeth, and he will look at me and say, what are you doing here? And I'll wedge my foot in the door because I'll have about five or ten seconds to make my spiel, and I will prattle it off quickly. I'm not worthy. Don't call me son. I won't call you dad, but please don't let me starve to death, please. And as he's rehearsing that, Jesus said, he looks up, And here comes someone running down the road at him. And as he looks hard, he realizes on the other side of that weathered face, those that leathered, lined face, that gray hair, he looks and he sees the face of a dad that he had forgotten, that he had betrayed and left. Thinking probably that the old man was coming to affront him and tell him, don't you step foot on this property. Instead, the Bible says the old man launches himself and covers the boy, literally lands on him, Ashland, covering him. William Blake, in his poem, The Little Black Boy, has this marvelous line. He says, we are put here on earth a little while to learn to endure the beams of love. How lovely is that? We are put here on earth a little while to learn to endure the beams of love. Why is it so hard to look someone in the eye when they compliment us? Why did my little sister, when somebody would say, that's a pretty dress, learn by the age of eight to say, oh, no, mom got this at a rummage sale? Why is it so hard to look into the beams of love and say, well, thank you. I think so, too. We are put here on earth a little while. Maybe it's because we endure the beams of our own shame, those voices that tell us that we're less than so long that we get used to those. And they wire our brain, they create ruts in our soul that that becomes normal. We don't have to endure the beams of hate. We learn how to do that, the beams of disrespect, the beams of diminishment. But we're put here on earth a little while to learn to endure the incredible grace of God, the love of God, and the old man laid over on top of him because love covers a multitude of sins. And then there's this remarkable part of the story. Jesus said, and when the old man laid on top of him and began to weep, my son is home. The Bible says the boy could not receive it. And he looked at that tattered life of his and said, oh, this old thing, no, 
And up through those beams of love, the boy said, I am not worthy. I don't deserve this. Please, please, just make me a slave. And as the father's heart broke, listening to this shame message, the father had already forgiven him. And I looked at the guys, just like Jesus would have looked at the group he was sitting with, and I said, you know what? Sin is not nearly as hard to overcome as shame. A place like this, it'll make you clean up. A place like this, I mean, who really wants to go back out and do the stuff that's broken your heart and your family's heart? Sin, God forgives easily. Sin is that thing that, man, if I get out of here, I'm going to do it differently. But the real enemy is shame. One young man came to me and he said, pray for my friend. He's been up for parole for six years. I said, well, he's been, had been able to be released for six years. I said, well, why hasn't he gone? He said, he burned so many bridges, he cannot get a parole plan. There is not one person outside these walls in six years who is willing to step up and say, we will help him get his life. So Kenny, six years after he could have walked out, there's nobody no wonder shame runs rampant even more than sin in a place like that. And the Pharisees that day were mocking this group of people because of their sin, but in their mocking, they were actually creating a greater malady in these people, perhaps even than sin, and that was shame. So Jesus finishes the story and he says that the old man said, hey, get a ring, get a robe, get a fatted calf, get a pair of sandals for these bloody feet. And the servants come and they pick that boy up and he stinks to the high heavens and they slide a ring on his finger. They take his feet and they wash them with water and they put sandals on those bloody callous feet and they put a robe over his stinking clothes. And then they take him by the arm with the father leading the way and they come to a party and the fatted calf, I mean the best calf they've got has now been killed, sacrificed and they're going to feed it to everybody who's there to celebrate this kid coming home. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said that's the way it is when in heaven when one sinner repents. And the Pharisees now are ready to maybe do some mitigated acquiescence and the Pharisees say, okay, okay, lost sheep, lost coins, debauched, lost son, we get it, they repent, you can have your little deal with them. And Jesus smiles and says, I'm not finished. And now Bob, he zeroes in on the whole point of the story. He says the father was at the party and the father looked around. Now remember this. So the setup is there was a shepherd who's with the sheep and he looks around and says, something's missing. So Joshi goes and looks. There's a woman who's with the coins and she says, something's missing. And she goes and looks. Jesus now says the father was at the party and he said, someone's missing. And he goes and looks. Do you see who the lost son was? The lost son is the one that Jesus had to go looking for. At the party, he looked around and said, hey, where's my elder boy? And the Bible said, one of the servants said, um, he didn't come. And Jesus said, why? And they said, well, he was coming in from the field. We ran into him out there, and when he saw the party going on, he asked us what that was, and we told him, what you were doing 
for the younger brother. And Jesus said, what did he do? They said he turned around and went the opposite way. He seemed pretty mad. So the shepherd went looking for the sheep, the woman went looking for the coin, and now the father goes looking for the lost son. Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees. And when he gets there, I picture the kids sitting up by the barn, looking down at the hill at the party, and he's underneath a sycamore tree, and his jaws clenched, and his teeth are grinding, and his tears are glistening with bitter tears, and he's staring at the party. See, when the Pharisees walked up to Jesus, comfortably sitting with these sinners, they walked up on a party of grace. And if there's anything a church should look like, a church, of all the ways to model a church, a church should always look like a party of grace. And if a church looks like anything less than a party of grace, it's not a church. And so the Pharisees walked up on this party of grace, and just like the elder son walked up on a party of grace and said, I don't want to be there, but watch the grace of this. Jesus doesn't rebuke the Pharisees. He ministers to them. Jesus said earlier that publicans and harlots would enter the kingdom ahead of Pharisees, not instead of Pharisees, just ahead of Pharisees, because people broken by those type of sins actually get to the kingdom, Jason, quicker than people who are still caught in self-righteousness and religious sins. Self-righteousness is a really strange sin. It's um, Self-righteous people are those who still somehow maintain the luxury of their secrets not being known yet. That's all. I'll say that again. Self-righteous people are people who have the luxury of their secrets not being known, generally. And they're so out of touch with themselves that it's easy to be out of touch with other people and look down their nose. Jesus said, the old man sat down and said, where are you, boy? And the elder brother, without breaking his angry gaze at the party, said, this kid of yours, people like that, broke you in mom's heart, wasted your money, wasted his life, lived a debauched life, embarrassed and humiliated all of us, and he comes home, and you throw him this party? Now, what's interesting is the Pharisees are waiting, just like I was waiting as, when I read this through the years, for Jesus to say, and the elder brother said, you threw him this party and you shouldn't have. It's not what he said. He never said, the elder brother never said, you shouldn't throw this party for them. Now, Butch, Jesus is revealing what's happening in the Pharisee's heart. Because the Pharisee is the elder brother. Jesus said the Pharisee never said you shouldn't have thrown a party for him. The Pharisee said, you've done this for this kid. And then he looked at the old man and said, I've been here slaving for you my whole life. And you've never so much as given me even a goat to have a party with my friends. The point of the story is that you can be a slave in the far country or you can be a slave on the front row of the church and never leave the Sunday school class. The point of the story is slavery is not your type of sin. Slavery is the sense of not being able to understand that you are a child of the Father and to appropriate that relationship fully. And some people are brave enough that when they can't appropriate their identity, they go off and they live like hell and they end up in prison. And then there are others who stay in the church 
but they also can't appropriate their identity. And when the truth finally comes out, the elder brother says, I've been here slaving for you my whole life. And the father's heart breaks and he says, this, that's what this has been to you? Slavery? You can stay home and religious and still be enslaved in the absence of identity and belovedness. And Jesus looked at that elder brother and instead of rebuking him, he wept and said, the father looked at him and said, everything I've ever had is yours. Your whole life was a party and you missed it. So Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, I want to tell you who you are. You're not just a bunch of mean people who are dehumanizing these people cruelly. That's the surface of who you are. But the core of who you are, this is where bad religion comes from and this is where self-righteousness comes from. He digs down beneath and he looks at them and says, you never have felt the party, have you? You never have known the grace the grace that you preach and share and live closely to, you never have known it because when you really know the party of grace, you will extend that party to every person you meet and you will celebrate it with every person you know. But until you know the personal party of grace of your own belovedness, you will be precise and exacting and self-righteous and tough and hard on every person you meet. That's the story. So a bit of relief comes over the guys and then Jeff come up here and finish us off. I tell them the story. I tell them, I say, so to some extent we're all lost sons. Some of us are lost elder sons. We lost our way even while wearing a clerical collar. Others lose their way in drug houses and end up incarcerated. And I tell him, I said, I, there was a boy that stumbled in or came to the church 18, 19 years ago, almost 20 years ago. Assembly of God kid, I tell them the story of this kid, played baseball at Florida State, got a degree in classical voice or almost finished his degree in classical voice at Florida State. Just a great kid. Assembly, just bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I immediately back then uh, just fell in love with this kid and we became fast friends and our love for baseball, our love for God and our love for dogs and all kinds of things. We just really hit it off and he was a special kid in the middle of that big church with me. And, but there was an underbelly to his life. This kid who could sing and lead worship and often did for me, there was an underbelly and it was an underbelly of addiction and drugs. And periodically through the course of those years, Kenny, he would fall off the wagon and we would put him back together and patch him up and we would move on and there was one particular space of time that he was doing so well, he actually moved into the house with me and was a part of my children's life. Slept down the hall from my nine-year-old and two-year-old, lived with us for about a year and came on staff at the church and led praise and worship at the church. And, but then that underbelly began to creep up and he began to slip and began to fall. His addiction began to rage and little by little over the course of time, he slipped to our fingers I remember a couple of occasions when I knew he was slipping really bad. He was still leading worship at the church, and I went to him and confronted him, and he honestly made me out to be a fool. On one particular occasion, I remember it was so hardened, he looked at me and laughed at me, Carol, and just broke my heart. I couldn't get to him. He slipped away. 
He slipped further and further away until finally he went on a crime spree, a bender, did some really horrible things, things he couldn't even remember because of the cocaine and the drugs. And I remember I lost him. I didn't know where he was. And finally somebody said, he's in the county jail down in Alabama waiting on extradition. His crime spree wasn't even fully complete then. I remember I drove all the way to Alabama just to sit in that courtroom because I wanted to see him and I wanted him to see me. And I, that moment, that day, I remember when the assistant DA came out and he said, hey, sir, thanks for coming, but we're not going to bring this kid in, but he's going to be on the screen and it's a two-way. He'll be able to see you. And I remember sitting on the back of that courtroom, Jen, looking up at that camera. And when he finally came on, I saw him, and I threw as much grace as I could. No shame. I, was, I just wanted him to see, hey, we can still put this thing back together. There's still time. And I remember when he saw me, when he saw me, Jocelyn, his head went down. And I remember almost screaming through that camera, look at me, boy. Look at me. The shame. He knew. That shame compounded into more sin and, and more brokenness. And the last thing I knew, he was sentenced to six and a half years, and he went away to some really harsh federal prisons where he watched people get killed. And I tell these guys this story. But then four years ago, after six and a half years, he got out, and he came out different, but he came out ashamed. When he got out, he wouldn't even really call me in those early days. I had to reach out to him. He wouldn't come back to church. He didn't come back to our church because he had so much shame. But little by little, sin was forgiven, but we just kept working on the shame, and our relationship began to grow back. He never really came back to church because that was too much to lead people and to fall that far. And, but I remember one day, he called me and said, I've met a girl, and he explained to me how nine ways to Sunday she was too good for him, and he didn't deserve her. But it seemed like God had let her into his life. He'd gone to high school with her years before, and somehow here she was, and and I looked at the guys, and I said, a year after that, I married those two. And you've been blessed and ministered to by her this week. And I pointed over at Jen because this is her. This is the girl that was the grace. I remember the first time I was telling the story, it hit me in the middle of the story. She's never even heard that story. And I look over at her, and she's a puddle and a mess, and she waves at the guys. And the guys all of a sudden have hope and some sense that there really is grace that can transform and put lives back together. And then I finally turn around and say, and that knucklehead of a kid who's now one of my dearest friends and always has been has got his life so beautifully together that now he goes on the road with us doing this and telling guys like you that you really can come home. And there's no sin too large, no shame too big. He even, when he was way down at rock bottom, wrote a song. And when he came home from those days, he asked me if he could sing that song for you and, or for us. And we let him sing it at church. And now he's here. And I finally pointed at Jeff and I say, that's him. And he wants to sing a song about the story I just told. And I hope, elder brothers and sisters, we get as much out of this as the sinners. So... Sing that song that you sang for him, Jeff. I don't recall the day I left When I set out to do my thing Don't remember if you wept If I even stopped to think I 
remember why I went, why my desire left your will. Don't know why I was so bent, leaving you to find my fill. What I do remember now, the bittersweet old memories of all the life you gave and how I used to love you loving me. I'm coming home, I can see the lights. I'm so tired and I don't know if I can look you in the eyes. I was wrong, I know it's been too long With every step I take, I'm dying to let you know I'm coming home It wasn't what I thought it'd be Away from you, out on my own Oh, I thought I'd be alive and free Instead, I'm broken and alone. And what I can't remember now is why I thought I had to leave to try and find myself. How I thought myself was all I'd need. But I'm coming home. I can see the lights. I'm so tired and I don't know if I can look you in the eyes. I was wrong. I know it's been too long. With every step I take, I'm dying to let you know. dreams I dream you'll forgive me when you see me come out to meet me cause I'm coming home I can see the lights I'm so tired and I don't know if I can look you in the eyes I was wrong I know it's been too long Every step I take, I'm dying to let you know I'm coming home, I'm coming home With every step I take, I'm dying to let you know I'm coming home, oh, I'm coming Isn't the gospel lovely?
Isn't the gospel lovely? Our ushers are going to receive our offering, and then we're going to go have a good old-fashioned potluck that Gary and Sandy have helped prepare for us. But let's still our hearts as they're preparing to receive the offering before we go. Would you close your eyes with me, and let's just meditate for a minute on the beauty of God's love, the forgiveness of sins we've been preaching for 2,000 years. I'm so grateful that there's more than that. We are grateful this afternoon, sweet Christ, for the healing of shame. We are grateful for that which brings us home to the fullness of our identity. We are grateful to be called sons and daughters of God. Whatever vestiges of shame still reside in our hearts, whatever embarrassment and humiliation we think we may have caused ourselves, I pray, Lord, that this story of an older child and a younger child will bring us all to that that beautiful space, that beautiful space of grace where we can rest, de-shamed, we can rest in our belovedness. Thank you for the healing of shame and those voices that torment us. May we be better this week at enduring the beams of love. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. And all of God's people said, amen.